This podcast is brought to you by FormKeep. Form endpoints for designers and developers. No iframes, JavaScript embeds, or CSS overrides. Try out our sandbox mode before you buy at formkeep.com. So the realtor had somebody else come out to do a follow-up inspection. So I've now had three plumbers look at this, the ones who did the original inspection, who came out to talk to me, didn't do another inspection, but he came out to talk to me and was re-looking at his videos they took. And then I had the plumbers who came out to fix just the leak, who found all this stuff. And then now I've had a third plumber come out and look at it. They can't find the breaks that the plumbers saw, other than the one that's visible from the outside, but they can't see that from you know their scopes. But the mm-hmm. plumbers seem to indicate that they could see it from their scope somehow. But they are saying that there's damage out where the line meets the city line that needs to be repaired. Mm-hmm. And that requires, like, tearing up the street. Mm-hmm. So they mm-hmm. can't find the expensive things that the that the first plumbers wanted to fix. <laughs> they found even more expensive stuff. So mm-hmm. at this point, I'm now going under the assumption that all of these plumbers are trying to rip me off. And nobody is even actually sure why the bathroom that backed up backed up. Because everywhere that they found breaks... If that was where the backup happened, the bathroom I was using while the other one was backed up should have also been backed up. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to get that one pipe fixed, maybe install some cleanouts, because I'm pretty sure every plumber is trying to rip me off. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I don't want to disparage all of plumbers, but that's my general experience with plumbers as well, is like you just keep going through them until you find one that you like, and then you uh, never let go. That's I mean, I'm just inherently distrustful of somebody who is telling me stuff that I have no way to personally verify and they want, you know, $7,000. Right. Yeah. Breaks in the sewer line is my hardcore band name. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds stressful. Yeah. Just what you want right after you move into a new house. There's always something in the grand scheme of things. It's not, it's not the, the worst I've heard of. So uh, no, it's but not that plus the new garage door, plus the wiring yeah. stuff, plus yep. getting the invisible fence installed for the dog. It's just a lot of stuff all at once. Mm-hmm. How's your invisible fence? Do you like it's it? It's not installed yet. Yeah. Oh, have you ever had one? Yes. Okay. How was training the dog on it? So the invisible fence, I think, actually stopped working after like a year. I think eventually we right. just stopped putting the collar on the dog. Right. The, the dog learns that it's there pretty damn fast. And once the dog knows it's there, you don't actually need it to be there anymore. Right. My kids really want a dog, particularly my older son. And we don't really have a yard that would really be well, like look very good or functional if it were fenced in. Uh, mm. so invisible fence is like invisible fence or really tiny dog are the two options I'm considering. Well, I mean, you still have some amount of like physical barrier, right? What do you mean? Like, is it just completely open? My or yard? is it like, yeah, my yard is, like, is there's completely a... open. The back to the back is a river, like a swampy river area. Oh. And then like all around the house, there's no fence or anything like that. I would be interested in how well... It works when it's that because when I've had it in the past, it's been like to block off the area of the yard close to the fence or where the fence was too low mm-hmm. or like a run that goes along the side of the house to a gate that the dog was able to open. Mm. It's usually not like accompanied by a physical barrier, but it's usually like a the places where it's not a few feet in front of a physical barrier. Mm-hmm. It was like a small, you know, it was like a small side of the house. Not I'd be I'd be curious. There are definitely people in my neighborhood who have it like all the way around their house. 
I mean, so, if it works, it works. Yeah, my wife is a my wife is big on like, but it's mean to the dog, and I'm like, yeah, maybe for a very brief period of time, and then they learn. <laughs> yeah, and it's... you don't have to spend thousands of dollars on a fence for the entirety of the yard, and then have a compromise. Like, I don't know. Right now, my kids just like run all around the house, and it's good fun. And like to put yeah. a fence there would be kind of a pain pain in the butt, but. Yeah, they're wearing me down on the dog front. I've been saying, like, I want to wait a couple years until they're a little older, but my older son has already stated that he's going to ask Santa for a dog. And I have, I've gotten in front of that one by telling him that dogs are not Christmas presents. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's probably good policy. They are and, good birthday presents, though. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I think I have till next spring, and then I'll probably have to bite the bullet and uh, get a dog. I want. I, it's funny that I'm in the position where I'm the one in the family that's like, no, we can't get a dog because I think out of everybody, I'm probably the one who will end up taking care of it the most, and like I actually am looking forward to such a thing. But it's yeah. just I'm I'm the one that somehow is being the practical one about like maybe we shouldn't get a dog in the middle of winter or like maybe like maybe we should wait till springtime when we can take it outside more and yeah I don't know you know the uh, one thing we did when we first got Django we actually couldn't leave him in our backyard at all and we we never leave him outside when we're not home but for a while in our first house that we had him in we just put him on a leash when we needed to, to t we we always had to take him to the front yard to go to the bathroom we would just mm -hmm. put him on a leash when he went out to go to the bathroom. And yeah, it was fine. Yeah, I think we'll probably end up getting like some sort of smallish dog that um, that really wouldn't be an issue. And then I don't know. We'll see. Our neighbors have like one of those dogs. that's like I don't know this big. Oh, a, ca <laughs> a cat. Like a football. Yeah, like it's a it's a cat. Which I've always historically been like, what's the point? Just get a cat. But uh, we've babysat that dog a couple times, and I was like, it's actually kind of fun. It's different. It's not like a dog you can go on a run with, but uh, or like take for a really long walk or something. But uh, you know, it's that. Anyway, <laughs> have you seen the pictures of uh, Steve and Ashley as they dog sit? I think it's like Ashley's sister's corgi. No. Well, they've been every time they dog sit this corgi, they post pictures and it's adorable. <laughs> That's the other thing is there's no chance I'm getting something like a corgi or even like really one of those football dogs because my wife is going to be very much like we need to rescue a dog kind of thing. Uh, uh, not many rescue corgis out there. <laughs> no. Well, you have an Australian shepherd. They're a good breed. Okay. Cool. Good show. See ya. Yep. See ya. <laughs> I've been thinking about the episode where we just recorded a week ago where we were talking about ratio and what is a good signal of like, I don't know, like what's a smell if you're adding more code than you're deleting and how much more code until it's a smell, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I was thinking about like, what is the actual problem that that is indicative of, right? So if you have this this sign that like, if you have a ratio that's way out of whack where you're adding way more code than you're deleting, what is the problem that then you should look for to be like, okay, this smell is present. <laughs> what am I looking for? And I, ha I don't have like a, a concise answer for this, but I think it's mostly as I reflect on like the projects where I've seen this, I think it's mostly that if you look at the pull requests that you're seeing and you're, in, in the commits that you see like are you seeing that n like new features are impacting like the design of the system or is it new features are getting added with like by adding code to the right file kind of thing right because i think that like as i reflected more on that that's really what it comes down to it's like do you approach every new feature or every change to a feature as a way to like keep your entire system making sense around like the array of problems that's set to solve versus do you just like okay well this is the area where we're doing this thing we need to slightly change what this thing does so i add a conditional here and then it does this thing 
if that's always the solution, that's how I think you end up in the spot where you're always adding and not like, yeah, it's just a sign. It's, I mean, I guess it's not that shocking. It's just, a, it's a sign that you're not refactoring the design of your system as you go. Yeah. I mean, so when I'm adding features to things, I tend to not necessarily always go red, green refactor. Sometimes I do. Usually it's if I'm writing, if I'm just doing the first red, green step and either I really, really hate the code or I'm finding it too difficult to add. I, I won't even get it to green. I'm, I'll just go and refactor to, uh, to make it easy to add the feature and then yeah. start o- and then start uh, again. And usually those are the commits that tend to be either neutral or red. Right. Those are that's the Kent Beck quote of like, first make the change easy. This may be hard, and then make the easy change. Right. Right. Um, which is a classic. I don't know if it's a tweet quote somewhere, something like that that makes the rounds every once in a while, and it's definitely like how I try it. Like, I'll just start doing a thing and be like, this solution is not going to make a lot of sense. And it's going to be a wasted like effort to get it to green in this state, because I know I'm not going to be happy yeah. with it, because it's difficult to do. But if it, it would be much easier to implement if x and then at that point, making sure that I'm refactoring as a separate commit as a separate, hopefully even a separate pull request. And then I say, like, right. I refactored it to make way for this feature, which will be much easier to implement because of x, y and z take a look at this refactor. Yep. Nothing has changed. The functionality is exactly the same. On my ongoing rant of, of good commit messages are good. <laughs> one thing I, I like to do too, though, you know, oftentimes I'll have two or three refactoring pull requests back to back to back that are all, it, it, you know, in service of the same change. Mm-hmm. I still think it's a good idea to just, even if you're copy pasting a section of the commit message from the other commits, just, just put it in every single one of those. Don't make somebody go chase down a bunch of links to figure out what you're actually trying to do. Oh, like the the eventual goal of this refactor is to get to a point where whatever. Yeah. Right. And that, yeah. And then it's usually like, yes, I'll usually say, you know, this is in service of this change. I want this change for this reason. The reason this is helpful for that change is because of this. Right. Yeah, that helps. And then also like, I'm just now I'm just remembering like when refactoring feels really good when you when you do like a large refactoring and you break it, preferably you do do the thing where you break it up into several smaller refactoring commits that are easy to right. easy to reason about. And like, I always have this moment where it's like where I'm following that process and I've done maybe like four or five smaller pull requests that are like refactor, 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 refactor. And each one kind of like brings the whole solution into greater focus. And then when I get to the point of like, and now I'm going to use this refactoring, I always feel like, like kind of like a magician where you're like, and now for my last trick, I've and done like two lines of code. Yeah, and you're like, boom, this whole feature done. And it just always feels so good when you do it that way. And I think yeah. it's key to break it up into those steps where like if, if you can, like I see so much that is like, okay, I started implementing this feature. I even wrote the test, right? So I started out on this red test and I got it to green. Either I got it to green and then I refactored or, you know, I refactored while trying to get it to green. <laughs> you okay over there, Mr. Miyagi? There's a, there's a, there's a mosquito in here. I don't want to bite me. <laughs> I might go grab the fly swatter. I think, I think I'm okay for now, though. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so you get in this mode where you, you write the test, and then you start trying to implement it. And you're like, oh, this is difficult. It would be easier if I just did this small refactor. So you do that refactoring, and you run the test again. It's still failing. And you're like, oh, okay. And you just kind of do this refactor and green step at the same time. Yeah. And then you end up with, if it's small enough, whatever. It seems fine. But as a general rule, what you end up with is like this thing that is, so you have this one commit with a pull request that's like, uh, I needed to implement this, so I changed all these other things. And it doesn't make it clear what the actual change you needed to make was and what the refactor was. 
which it makes it a little harder to review and also just makes it less obvious what the advantage of the refactor was. Right. Yeah, the refactor definitely ideally makes sense just on its own. Mm-hmm. You know, we were talking, I think it was two weeks ago, about how I redid inserts for the 80 billionth time in Diesel. Mm-hmm. But I, I, yeah, I remember back when I was first adding um, batch insert support on SQLite, uh, I think back then we had two insert query structs, one without a returning st- uh, clause and one with a returning clause. And um, in hindsight, I would have ended up actually with similar code because SQLite doesn't support returning clause. But I guess I didn't really think about the fact that SQLite doesn't support the returning clause at this point in time. <laughs> but I remember just going like, okay, well, I need to have the batch insert version now be a different struct because of reasons that you know later I was able to get rid of uh, like a year later. But And if I have this with the returning clause and without a returning clause version, now I'm going to have the single row with a returning clause, batch insert with a returning clause, single row without a returning clause, batch insert without a returning clause. This will be way easier if there's just one struct before I do this. Mm-hmm. And then that was just also a change that like, and this makes sense on its own because look, we used to have two things. Now we have one thing. It's better. Right. And sometimes like, so this is where I really start to struggle is when there's some sort of like organizational thing that gets in the way of like the best way to break out the work right so like imagine you're on a project where this isn't an open source project it's like you're at a company and you have a ticket right you have a jira ticket that's like implement this feature and i've worked in too many places where there's like all this process around like okay nothing is supposed to get committed to git unless it has a ticket attached to it right but a ticket can't be like you can't have a commit with a ticket number if that ticket is not resolved. Can you can you just open a ticket that right, is so this then, code sucks make this code better? Right. So then you have to open up a ta- a sub like if it's Jira you're like I have to open up this subtask or whatever and it's just a lot of bookkeeping for a thing yeah. that just need like if you want it to be done that way you have to like you have to pave the road so that that's easy, right? And you have to just yeah. like consider yeah. <laughs> if you can't ju- if you can't just refactor because because you wanted to refactor something, I I'd, I'd quit. <laughs> and it just seems like I, I mean it's not that you can't, it's just like and I catch myself like this on some client projects where it's like it's almost always they're using Jira and there's some sort of like tracking and reporting and stuff like that done on top of it. And it's like, okay, you know what I want to do right now? I want to change something about the gem file. Or I want to change whatever. It's not at all related to the change I'm working on right now. It's just a thing I noticed right now. And so, like, a lot of places will be like, no, what you're supposed to do is open a Jira ticket and uh, then get that thing prioritized into the sprint. It's like, I'm not going to do that because I know it's never going to get into the sprint, right? So I'm just going to do it. But, like, for my own hygiene purposes of, like, nope, these are separate things. I want to make separate commits and separate pull requests for them. I want to just submit a thing that is not tied to a JIRA issue, right? So even if that has to be, like, in your organization, even if that just has to be, like, I don't know, a general purpose hygiene (laughs) JIRA ticket that's just okay to always tack things onto or something. Like, just find a way to make that as simple as possible for everybody so that there's less less impediment to doing it and less chance that they'll just like tack it on to something that so so like it makes commits bigger makes things harder to review makes like yeah the commit message won't reflect why they wanted to do it because it was just this ancillary thing that got tacked on to what they were doing that kind of thing yeah i think those sort of processes tend to be a smell of an inadequate test suite hmm 
Like the the idea that like everything has to have a Jira ticket associated with it or whatever, that kind of thing. Right, that you can't just commit that you can't just make a commit because you want to restructure some code and it wasn't in service of any individual feature. How is that a sign of an imperfect or an inadequate test suite? Well, because it generally m means that you want to shy away from just refactoring or changes that aren't in service of a feature, which means likely that you're afraid of breaking something. And yeah. if that's a, you know, if that's the case, and that's typically either your test suite's inadequate or you're not trusting your test suite enough. Yeah, I can see that, but I can also see it from a maybe it is a trust thing either way, right? Because like, do you trust your test suite enough, or do you just like trust your team enough to like, like a lot of times when I when I ask like why is this, it's like well we want to know what everybody's working on, right? I don't know. Like if I don't create a Jira ticket for it, it's because it didn't register high enough for me to like I'm not going to spend three days on something I don't create a Jira ticket for, right? I'm going right. to spend an hour on something I don't create a Jira ticket for, that kind of thing. And just kind of trusting your team to make that decision of like, do I need to socialize this change with a Jira ticket? Or can I just like, this is developer code only, it's never going to go to QA, it's never going to like, that kind of thing. It just seems like, yeah, just just do it now. Like, don't open a special Jira ticket for it. Just do it, open a pull request and get it done. Any obstacle you put in place that like makes somebody consider reconsider if they want to bite something off now, is just a, it's something you should look at on your team. And if you're on a team where like, you find yourself making those, like being like, well, I really want to do this right now, but it's not in service of this ticket I'm working on. And I really don't want to jump through the hoops that blah, blah, blah. Just start like figuring out how you can both like check the box that the project manager type people want you to check by opening that Jira ticket and just keep yourself from having to make that decision. So if that's like I said, like having some general purpose ticket that's always open, that's like developer refactor or something like that as long as you don't abuse that and be like i spent three days on developer refactor or something like that right and that's, right that's that trust relationship that i was trying to talk about yeah i mean again yeah you got to trust your team to be doing work that is valuable without needing to to micromanage what tasks they're working on right and like that should be a problem that kind of solves itself over a span of a few weeks right if you're like you know i look back in the jira log and i see like two feature things that got done they were pretty small I looked at the changes, they weren't very huge. What else have you been doing? <laughs> you know? Right. Um, that's kind of how that would end up shaking out, right? And if the answer is like, well, I actually, you know, I ended up doing all this other stuff, then it's like, okay, it seems like you're doing enough stuff that's off the books here that we need to have a conversation about whether, like, if it's really, truly important, then let's get it on the books is like a thing we're tracking. And if it's not, then let's talk about priorities, that kind of thing. Right. If it is the sort of thing that is just because, you know, you're afraid of breaking things, we were talking about trusting your test suite. I was going to mention earlier, you know, I think you should trust your test suite enough to catch like you accidentally charged people's credit cards for 10 times the amount you were supposed to. Right. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't trust any test suite to catch every possible issue, but then also just trust your team and trust your processes enough that for minor uh, service disruptions, they get resolved as they happen. Yeah. In a way that minimally impacts your customers. That reminds me of like the trust thing reminds me of a like the Friday deploy discussions, right? Or I see like, I always see these things on Twitter that's like, why did you deploy at, you know, one o'clock on yeah. a Friday afternoon? And I'm always like, why not? Why can't you deploy at one o'clock on a Friday afternoon? Right? I don't deploy afternoon on Fridays. <laughs> yeah. But like, so my initial reaction is always, why not? You don't trust your process enough. But then it's like, then I can. The process is you fix it. <laughs> right. But then I, yeah. And I consider the risk benefit analysis of like, okay, I do trust my process, but sometimes things go wrong. Am I prepared to fix this thing at four o'clock or at five o'clock or at six o'clock or right? on Saturday or on Saturday or on Sunday? Or should I just wait? Right. Is there a thing in here that I really need to get out today or can it just wait? And I think that like that's the pragmatic approach of it. I wouldn't say like never deploy on a Friday. Like sometimes you're like, 
all right, I'm confident in this change. It's a small change and I want to get it out there and it's useful to get to my users. And I've made the cost benefit analysis here and decided that it's worth it. That kind of thing. Sure. But uh, yeah, it just boils I mean, down to trust, I think. I do it in the mornings. I'll, I'll deploy Friday morning. <laughs> I don't I don't deploy on Friday afternoon, though. Right. Just If you deploy Friday morning and it goes so poorly that you're still busy at six o'clock on Friday... <laughs> Well, it's like also it can it can take up to a day for a problem to actually manifest itself. Yeah, that's true. Depending on where, yeah. Usually it happens within 12 hours. <laughs> Usually. Yeah. I guess. And and like that that decision changes based on like okay, I'm deploying Shopify versus I'm deploying code for a site that like at this point 20 people are using, right? Well, sure. So it's it's different also if your situation is and if the site does go down it can just be down all weekend and that's fine right <laughs> you know i'm going under the assumption that like if something goes down the process is hopefully you're the one who gets paged that's the other that's the other thing there were some people uh who were working from japan and i don't know, i i got a bad taste in it it wasn't them but they, you know basically they were told like hey you should just work like you're working from anywhere else uh, regardless of uh, of the time zones, but what that meant was, you know, so they would be working and deploying something on what for them was Monday morning. That for the rest of the company, and for me, and importantly, I think the detail is for the people who got paged. Mm -hmm. It was Sunday. It was Sunday evening, right? And I certainly, you know, I certainly hesitate to do things that cause me to have to work on a weekend. But it's also doubly important, I think, if the person who's going to get paged if something does go wrong isn't you. Mm -hmm. Do you get paged? When in your work at Shopify, uh, I'm not on the on-call rotation right now, but I used to be. The everybody in production, our version of Ops, goes on to the general IMOC uh, Instant Manager on-call rotation, which is basically just the general something is wrong, and it was noticed by support, mm -hmm. and some uh, and it's affected our customers. We need to page somebody, and their job is basically to figure out who the right team is to ping, page them. Usually then also uh, go through that's the person who goes through the process of starting an incident making sure that our status page is updated that the customers are aware and Then do a post-mortem and retrospective after the fact right and the process is a little different depending on if it's impacting Less than half our customers or not right the, one of the things that I've <laughs> I really like about working at ThoughtBot is like we don't do ops stuff <laughs> like, sure. like that's not to say like if we I've had clients before where something I did took down a site on a Friday or a Saturday or whatever and I notice it or like I get a ping on slack or an email or whatever that I happen to check and like it's not like I'm like well that's not my job like yeah you're having problems I'm gonna fix it for you but I'm not like at their beck and call on a Saturday night right Right. Um, and for that, we will recommend like outsourced ops teams and things like that. Um, but it's been, it has been one of my nice quality of life, uh, <laughs> improvements over when I was working at Akamai, when I was on call every, like we'd, we'd have a rotation and like, yeah. at, at one point it was just like, it's part of your job and that's your, and you go on this rotation. At some point they improved it to like, when you are on call there, you get an additional stipend of for, oh, for doing this, which was nice because it also improved the ability to say like, I know I'm supposed to be on call this week, but I'm going to be on vacation. <laughs> right. Can, and then you have to find somebody you have to, to find somebody you. to trade with or whatever. But when there's money involved, it's like, would you like the $500 stipend for being on call? Like, <laughs> here right. it is. Come take it. And you're much more likely to get takers. Like I mean, in the early days, I took a lot of stuff off hand, people's hands because I was like, yeah, I'm going to be around, whatever. But when I'm on yeah. call, I'm, I always found it stressful to be like, well, I have a thing I'm going to be at, but I've got to bring my laptop because you never know. Right. And this was before, like nowadays I can probably get by with a smartphone for a lot of what I would need to do. 
um, at least to be able to get in touch with somebody who would be able to do the thing from a computer or something. But at the time, it was like everybody, you know, I had a flip phone and that was it. Right. And an actual, at, at one point, not at, I don't think at Akamai I ever had an actual pager, but at my company before, I definitely had an actual like pager that I wore on my belt. So one thing that I did learn from just spending some time on the on-call rotation is the magic of pager duty. And there was some discussion recently in a Slack channel that I'm in about the dangers of giving out your actual phone number, uh, even to people that you trust, just because you're, 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 you know, they were, uh, they were like, well, you're, but you're giving us the power to wake you up in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. But I, I've since got it set up so that my phone does not give any notifications of any kind after 6 p.m. Yep. There is a pager duty <laughs> number set up. Mm-hmm. My wife has it, my mom has it, and my alarm company has it. <laughs> and I think that I, I should probably put it like on my fridge with like in case of emergency or something. But so that's the always only, yeah. yeah, that's the only number that will make my phone give any sort of notification is if you call this number after uh, other, other than that, there's no way to get, make my phone beep or buzz or make any noise after after 630. Yeah. And giving out your actual phone number in those situations is like I found before where it's like I'm not on call, but I'm getting called and I pick up the phone and I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to try and be helpful and then find out later. I'm like, why, you know, I'm not on call. And it's either like, sometimes the person on call didn't respond, but sometimes it's just like, yeah, but like the last time this happened, you were very helpful. (laughs) Right. And it's like, oh, darn. Like, (laughs) I shouldn't have been as helpful. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. So, so that happens occasionally in Shopify. And for us, that's always a sign that uh, there's a missing on call rotation or bad documentation or something. Or bad documentation, because we have, for the really critical ones, we have redundant on-call schedules. So, you know, there's the IMOC rotation. There's also secondary IMOC. So there's always actually two people on-call, one who gets paged if the first one doesn't respond. And then there's also the oh shit on-call, which is like basically only the higher, you know, the higher up managers mm-hmm. in, uh, in engineering. It's a small enough number of people, and we expect it to never escalate to that level. But then it's just one of those levels of it's only people who we truly trust to always be available to respond when they're on the rotation right but yeah if you can avoid being on call i highly recommend it it's nice <laughs> yeah no it's one of those I, I absolutely agree uh but it's also one of those like at the end of the day somebody has to be on call right whether it's you know you somebody else in your company or outsourced mm-hmm. generally speaking if, you know if your application being down for 12 hours is unacceptable somebody has to be on call right I don't know. I guess my on-call experiences are colored by the last time that I was on it, which was at Akamai, where it's like there's a million things that could possibly be causing this thing, and I don't have rights to do half the stuff I need. Like, Oh, sure. You know, I go through my checklist, and it's like, if this is happening, then you need to get in touch with XYZ. And it's like such a – it's like – different than being on call for like if you have a single rails app that's deployed to heroku and you have rights to do things there like it's much different than like oh i don't know let me just try and restart the dyno and see what happens right Right. like that kind of thing or like let oh i see it's a data problem let me just log into the console and make this quick change (laughs) Um, yeah and those things shopify is closer to akamai in that yeah, it's not it's not a rights issue. It's more right. of a well, in the case of data stores, it actually might be a right. I was going to say, you're but... probably not going to be able to log into a production console and just change whatever you want. Uh, it depends on what part of the application. Right. But even then, like, at least I don't want to be that on call. <laughs> I, don't know, I, I, don't, I don't think it's too bad, though, to have it just be like you are the person who's on call who is considered qualified to determine which team is responsible for the thing that's breaking. Right. And then ping the on call for that team. Mm hmm. Makes sense. 
Yeah, talking about speaking of on calls, though, there's also a lot to be said for spending more time on app resiliency, so you don't need to get paged as often. Yes, and that's easier to do when you have like purview over like the entirety of the thing, right? <laughs> so right. like in my situation where it was like, there's so much that go wrong here. There's very little. Half the times that I'm getting paged, it's because like there's a hardware problem on the server, and it's like that's not like I can make as much noise as I want about how we need better automatic failover in these situations, but I'm not actually the one who's going to be implementing better automatic failover in these situations, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but like certainly, if you are in a position to like automate this stuff away, like automate monitoring, automate like the first, I don't know, the server's been down for a little bit. Why don't we just automate trying to restart it and see what happens? I don't know those kind of responses. I, I like the Netflix solution to this problem. The chaos monkey? Is that yes. theirs? Yes. Yeah, where they develop the tool that just takes down random dependencies in production. Mm -hmm. The argument being the only way you're going to find that your stuff actually does what you want it to do or the only way you're actually going to fix these problems is if you see the behavior and can expect that something's going to go wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those, if you're doing it in production, your developers are going to fix it. Right. Yeah, I want to look up look that up. Like wasn't it like it would it would either introduce network latency or take out network links or something like that? Yeah. Yeah. It so, would it, it had a bunch of different ways it would cause failures. Chaos Monkey Monkey randomly terminates virtual machine instances and containers that run inside of your production environment, exposing engineers to failures more frequently, incentivizes them to build resilient services. And that's pretty much spot on. Uh, <laughs> so Yeah, so like Here's an example of actually we have a test for this in Shopify, which uh, was interesting. Basically, for us, if a sh you know shop storefront, let's say our database goes down, mm -hmm. but we do very very heavy caching, and specifically the shop storefront is something that we would expect to always be able to serve from cache alone, mm -hmm. from various layers of caching. That maybe not the whole page cache, but certainly any database queries that we would have done would have gotten cached uh, in Redis probably. And so it's one of those like we have a test that makes sure if our if our actual SQL database is down the storefront can still be shown, assuming that everything we need for that shop storefront is uh, on a warm cache. Mm -hmm. How do you test that? By literally uh, pointing active record at a, at a database that, um, or actually, no, I think we have a tool that's somewhat like Chaos Monkey built in, and we just hook into that in our test suite. Cool. Called Semian. I think it's open source. Yeah, it is. What's it called? Oh yeah, Semian. That's what I was, there's a link to this at the, in the Chaos Monkey tool itself. So I don't know, they're oh. somehow related. It says in the Chaos Monkey readme, it says support Simeon Army Google Group. So I don't know if they're like the same project or somehow related, but interesting. Yeah. But anyway, so we hook into this in our test suite and take down the database. Uh, it's an integration test. So then we just try hitting the page. Yeah, that's cool. Some of these things like like there's times where like the work that I do on a day to day basis, we don't generally get to this level, right? We don't get to like where something like chaos monkey would be appropriate to be using like it's just not a con like if the database is down restart it <laughs> that's that's the solution it shouldn't be down right it's not a thing we expect and it's not a like the risk benefit analysis is not there for us to handle a database being down or cost benefit sure. analysis i guess i mean at, at the same time i think there's something to be said for error handling that's structured in such a way that that you're actively making that decision hmm what do you mean by that I think it's way too easy to write Ruby code and not be aware, oh, and this call can fail, and why right. this call could fail, right? as opposed to working in Haskell or Rust or even to a certain extent Go, where if you call something that can fail, you have to check whether it succeeded. Yeah. If you then make the decision of, so like then in Rust you might do, you know, 
database connection established, giving it the URL, dot expect could not connect to database, which basically says if, if this doesn't work, raise an exception and crash the program right. with this message. If you're actively deciding that's an unrecoverable error and there you go. One other, one other thing that is kind of nice there though is, um, again, depending on how your code is structured, right? It, it becomes much easier to structure your code so the database connection is actually just established when you need it and you don't get an exception. You get a thing that is an error object that you can do what you choose to do when you have it. But basically what I mean is it, it becomes much easier to uh, not try to connect to the database or even actually not check if connecting to the database failed until you actually are ready to execute a SQL query. So if you just happen to be going through a code path that you don't need a database connection for, I'm not saying that you're guaranteed to not have crashed your program because you couldn't connect to the database, but it, be, it, it becomes, in my mind, a little bit easier to structure your code in that way. Yeah, and that like is reminding me of code I've recently seen where it's like, this process can fail, and you should be checking if this process failed, right? So like, uh, the project I was just on, there was this thing where like you would pass these objects to these services, and the services would mutate the object in some way, and mm -hmm. uh, then try and do an operation with it. And either the service itself or the thing that like called the service would end up having to check like, okay, is the object that I passed in, does it have errors on it? If it does, then don't continue, right? That kind of thing. And that pattern was repeated in lots of places where it was like, does it have errors? Okay, then, con then it doesn't have errors, so continue. Does it have errors? It doesn't have errors, so continue. And so that was noticed and the solution that was moved to was like, oh, it's a pain to constantly be checking for these errors, so we should just raise exceptions because then you have to handle them, right? And that is a problem because there are times where that's appropriate, where it's like, if we hit this, there's really nothing we can do. And there are times right. where, no, that like it's a reasonable thing for this to fail for this reason. And now it's raising an exception. And so now you're actually using those exceptions for flow control, where it's like a conditional. And what you really wanted was like some sort of non-local return or something right. like that. And as I looked at those more and more, I was like, <laughs> my experience, my limited exposure to things like Haskell, I was like, oh, you know what they really want here? They want a result type. And they right. want like, <laughs> and so then I started looking at like Ruby result type and there's like a project on some, not GitHub, one of those other things that's like implementing monadic result types for Ruby. And I was like, this is not a thing I'm going to be able to convince people. <laughs> no, do. and you also want, so like, Go is a good example of, it's not a result type, but it has very much the same effects as right. having a result type. I think Go is an example, a good example of what happens when you have a result type and don't have proper additional support for it, mostly, I guess, syntactically. Like in Rust, the only reason that result isn't just a pain to work with is because we have the try macro, which is now the question mark operator, which is, if this is an error, just return that same error, bubble it mm -hmm. up, and uh, it tries to do type conversions if it needs to. But specifically, it's it's something that is an early return, which is originally was only possible because we had macros, and now uh, I mean it's it could still be possible with macros, but now we also have a dedicated operator for it that's a little bit more lightweight. But you know, being able to say like I want the value out of this, and you need to be able to do an early return if it's an error, mm -hmm. I think that's something that is really required for monadic error handling to be ergonomic. Yeah. Also, some sort of panic, some sort of way of saying, no, this actually is unrecoverable, and I would like to crash the program if the, if this errors. Right. And the, like, I was starting to think about, like, how does, how does this handled in Elixir, like, which does not have a monadic result type, but it has, like, it's common in those situations to return tuple that's, like, the atom okay, okay. and with the result yep. or error with a message, that kind of thing. And so yep. you'll often, and with pattern matching, you can easily match on that. 
So yeah. it works reasonably well. It nudges you more heavily towards, I want to crash the process if this failed than I would like. But, and I get that sort of, you know, the Erlang philosophy. Yep. And, and it, that works for some things. That's not necessarily the same kind of resiliency that I'm talking about, though, where just right. if your dependencies are down, your app still works. You know, there, there's a there's a big difference between like serving something either, you know, with parts of it missing or reduced fidelity or what have you, but still getting the job done versus let it crash and restart it, which is also fine for some things. But is it that's a very different kind of uh, use case, I think. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Although, you know, to be fair, if the thing that is down was better structured in a let it crash and then restart it kind of way, you probably have fewer have fewer things go down. Right. But I mean, things going down is only one form of error, right? Right. There are just logic problems that happen and like result in an error like or a state like there's something about the query you're trying to execute that's never going to succeed no matter how many times you restart the database, right? Sure. Um and catch those at compile time <laughs> there you go with diesel uh <laughs> there are some fun ones that we can't catch that we don't even try to like there's the obvious ones of just like we don't try and, and validate that for like inserts the only thing that we're going to validate is that the data you're trying to insert is the right type for that table mm-hmm. we don't try to know or care about your triggers your constraints or your database defaults so we don't actually know or care about whether or not like the insert is going to be successful other than just some of the obvious cases that we can prevent so, like, for example, like, non-nullable and stuff you handle, but... Uh... Not for insert. Oh, really? Yeah, because uh, we... Well, so we won't let you explicitly insert null into a non-nullable column. Right. But uh, You'll let we you don't... leave it out of the insert statement entirely? Right. Exactly. Right. Because there might be a default. Right. That makes sense. But, like, you wouldn't ever catch, like, um, this is a string field, but it has a length restriction of, like, 20 characters, and you're passing 30 characters. Exactly. Like that. We could we could probably represent some of them. You know, that one I don't think we ever would want to just because there's no type that in Rust that we could reasonably represent a fixed length string of 20 characters. Right. But anyway, so but there's some fun ones that are like in the scope of technically Diesel's meant to try and prevent them, but mm-hmm. I don't because it would be painful. Like an an a random example is uh Postgres even though it claims to allow UTF-8 any UTF-8 string will not allow strings containing null bytes. Mm-hmm. And there actually is a type in Rust that represents a string that is guaranteed not to have null bytes called C-string. C-string is also null terminated, which we don't need in this case, but that's irrelevant. But like, I could totally, for Postgres, just not implement to SQL for string and only implement it for C-string. And that basically forces the user then to show me, like, yeah, I'm giving you this string and it doesn't contain any null bytes. But given that the overwhelmingly common case is to have a string that doesn't contain null bytes, mm-hmm. and I would like this to work with the string type... We give you a runtime error if that one happens. Or uh, my favorite, we've actually got an explicit test for this because this used to crash your program. Basically, I once had a bug where I was checking for errors incorrectly if it, if the query just could not even be sent over the wire mm-hmm. and therefore was ending up with a error object that had no message. But Postgres's documentation says that errors should always have a message. So that code is marked as unreachable uh, and will crash your program if it's reached. And it turned out the reason for this was I was trying to insert uh like 50,000 rows into the database in one query mm-hmm. and it was like two bind parameters per row and uh the wire protocol uses a 16-bit integer to say how many uh how many bind parameters are included in the query <laughs> and so i was trying to send more bind parameters that could be included in 16 bits right but so we actually have a test suite that's like if you do this 
I also have a, a check that's like, first of all, enforce that this errored, and if it doesn't error, it fails the test with a message of like, uh, something in the Postgres wire protocol has changed that this this query can now be sent. We need to find some new query that can't be sent uh, in the wire protocol because the test is invalid. Mm-hmm. But then just making sure that it errors and that the error has a message. Yeah. An error specifically in a way that is returning an error and not crashing the program. I I don't know. I, I just like all this conversation and all of my recent experiences is just like I got to get on to something that's has a compiler with types and saves me from so much of my checking to see if something is nil <laughs> yeah. essentially or just like allows me to better communicate the types involved in the program and what to expect and it yeah. serves as like good documentation and it's just like i don't know like part of me looks back at when i switched from doing like java and c-sharp development to doing ruby development being like oh why like at least i had something there right <laughs> right but yeah like, checked exceptions are a thing Mm-hmm. I don't like checked exceptions. Oh, like in Java where you have to say this throws whatever. Right. Yeah, C Sharp. I don't think C Sharp had that. It can kind of accomplish the same thing to a certain mm-hmm. extent. Yeah, I guess. Other than, you know, there's also unchecked exceptions. <laughs> yeah, but I, I, I don't know. Like I just like I moved from Java and C Sharp to Ruby and was like, oh, man, this is so great. I don't have to cast anything. I don't have to, like this is just like whatever if it responds to it it does it duck typing it's great i love it um but in reality that's not really what i liked about ruby what i liked about ruby is that like it wasn't java or c sharp and that like (laughs) i could read it easily and it had rails which was awesome and still is awesome and all those things and i would like some of that with a compiler please (laughs) it's just what i'm coming around to i mean i think we're starting to get to the point where type systems are catching up with what we want from dynamically typed languages. Yeah. I still think there's some missing middle ground. Like uh, one of the things that is becoming more and more popular in more recent languages like Crystal or TypeScript are uh, anonymous unions. Mm-hmm. Right, we talked about this in a past episode, but like having a, having a type be string pipe integer. So it's just one of those two things. You don't have to give yep. it a name. You don't have to do any any ceremony to be able to take both a string and an integer. Mm-hmm. But then the compiler still enforces that you are only calling things that work with either a string or an integer. Right. You know, and then in Crystal, for example, if you do if thing dot is a string, and now in the body of that if statement, the type of the variable has changed to string. That's one of the things I really wish Rust had. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely mostly there, uh, Rust type system, I think, in terms of like giving me what I wanted from dynamic languages, but still having the compiler there really checking my back. Like just as an example, right? So, so you're mentioning you don't want to have to check for nil everywhere, right? Right. I mean, that's that's the simplest example, but yes, go ahead. <laughs> so, just one thing that's sort of a side effect of Rust has better support for propagating errors than it has for propagating nil, or or none uh, in the case of Rust, mm-hmm. is uh, I assume that generally speaking, if you're calling dot first or dot get result on a query object in in diesel since that's the case of it this query returns either zero or one rows i'm assuming that more often than not the case that you actually are looking for is i expect this to return one row so i actually have not found as an error case and then there's a method that you can call it dot optional which basically pattern matches the error and if the error is not found it converts the whole it basically changes it from result your model to result option your model where where the error type not found gets converted to none but that was just one of those cases of like and then it's it's really ergonomic to deal with this and you know that you have the value in it you don't have to worry about nil causing an error but then also you don't have to 
check that there was a row return because I'm assuming that you wanted that to begin with and I'm, I'm treating that as an error by default. But then if you actually do want it to be zero or one, it's, it's just one method call away. But like there's no ceremony to you. I guess the ceremony is you put a question mark if you want to propagate the error. But like the compiler is forcing you to deal with the fact that there might be an error. By default, we're treating things that you are likely wanting to be an error as an error. But you're not, you're not having to do the same kind of um, ceremony is the wrong word. I'm trying to think of exactly what I mean. I want to say it feels so much more lightweight than doing the same thing in Java, but I don't quite know what I mean by that. Mm-hmm. I mean, ceremony seems okay. I don't know. Uh, Java's getting much better about having more fluent interfaces, mm-hmm. and that helps a lot. I haven't written Java in many years, so yeah, my opinions of Java are quite out of date at this point. <laughs> if you look at working with collections in Java 8, it looks surprisingly close to Ruby or JavaScript now. That's good. That was one of the immediate things I noticed when I was working. Like, once I understood, not even fully understood blocks, but understood, like, okay, this is how you iterate over a thing. I was like, oh, this is, like, how do how do I go back to doing it, like, with the for loop? And, like, that just silly seems silly now. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the major things I noticed. I wonder if there is some way that you could abuse blocks in Ruby to get the early return you would need for the try macro in Ruby. Because blocks are implemented as coroutines and have and have the ability to escape the call site. Hmm. Um, yes, the answer is yes because there's always a way to abuse Ruby to do. <laughs> right. I mean, you could definitely do it with binding, but I'm trying to think if there's a way to do it that that like doesn't you know make your program really slow like calling binding would. Mm-hmm. All right. Have we done enough for today? <laughs> yeah, I have to go to the doctor's office now. Oh, okay. Good wide-ranging conversation today. Yeah. Um, oh, hold on. Before we go. Oh, yes. Did you watch Star Trek? No. There we go. Okay. <laughs> Why? I'm go- I am I actually thought today on my way in, I was like, oh, there should be a new Star Trek episode for me to watch before I have to cancel that subscription to the CBS thing. Yeah. So we'll talk I, about it next week. I figured right. you didn't. I will watch it then. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 128, a big number for us computer Ooh, people. Yeah. You can no longer fit in a, uh, so what is it, 15 bits or 7 bits? 7 bits. 7 bits, yeah. Yeah, need the whole 8 <laughs> bits for us. As always, ratings, reviews, and iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm, or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to Bike Shed, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>